You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You could turn to Luke 18. Um, I'm going to read this passage, but we're not going to put it on the board or on the white, uh, whatever this is, projector. So um, if, you, if you could find a Bible and, and open it to Luke 18, we have Bibles on the tables, or else you could use uh, one of your phone's apps with a Bible on it. Um, how many of you bring your own Bibles? Anybody? Oh, look at all the hands. Yes. That's pretty cool. Because it's like, it's, you know, you have to carry it around. Your hands get cold when it's negative four out. Um, anyways. Luke 18, 15 through 17 has this passage um, that I'm going to read about uh, childlike faith. And so I'm going to read it and then I'm going to tell you a story about childlike like faith. And so Luke 18, starting in verse 15, is where Jesus uh, is around and his disciples are around and there's kids. And here's what happens. Uh, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. So the disciples rebuked the people bringing their kids to Jesus. Um, but Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he says, Truly, I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so let's pray this morning. God, we take um, your word seriously. God, we take your... Um, presence in our life um, among the most serious things that we think about or or do. God, we thank you that you uh, came to this earth as as fully human, and you were fully God at the same time, and you're able to save us, and you're able to, um, um, for us to know what it is like for you to be God and both human, that God, we at least have this human side of you, that you came down as one of us, And so, God, we worship you and we praise you as you are holy and divine. And we thank you for this story about children and how we as humans should have faith like a child. So, God, we love you and we praise you. And everybody screamed. Amen. Um, Let me tell you a story. It has to do with uh, the children of faith. And this story, by the way, to kind of preface it, doesn't really have to do with what I'm talking about today. But it's kind of a preface story, a reminder to us. Because today's lesson, just a little heads up, uh, some of you love very nerdy lessons. And you will get that today. Because we're going to talk about church history, some vocabulary words. uh, We're going to talk about C.S. Lewis and one of his arguments today. We're going to talk about uh, early church fathers. Um, And so it's a pretty heady lesson this morning. And so I wanted to preface it with just a story about having faith like a child, because sometimes I think there's, there's two extremes. We could just be, oh, blind faith, just believe it, and, and don't worry about anything. Um, don't study anything. And then there's, there's obviously, that's, that's too extreme. And there's maybe another extreme that says, oh, just, just learn theology. You don't have to act out faith. You don't have to believe. You just, just you know, know some theology. And it's like, no, those are two extremes. And so to have faith like a child and to know what we're doing in here today, um, to know about our faith and to have reasons for our faith are both very important. So anyways, the story is that a couple years ago, I um, joined some people with my youth group and we took a van. There's like 10 of us. And we drove to LA and we did a mission trip in LA. Anybody ever do a mission trip in LA? 
A couple of people, sweet. So we worked the homeless. One of my favorite things was that we did a VBS, a vacation Bible school, all week long for seven days. We, uh, or for five days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we went down to uh, South Central LA, kind of known to be uh, a bad part of LA, the projects, uh, right on the border of Compton and Watts. I mean, those are like the cities that like the gangsters rap about. Um, and and so we, the, the, the precedent had kind of preceded itself. And so it really was, especially uh, back in the day, was and still today known as kind of gang capital of America, just lots of gangs and violence. And so we got to this church and the, the pastor instructed us about the, the vacation Bible school and we had come prepared, ready to put on this uh, vacation Bible school for the kids. And so he said, now just go out and get the kids. And so we went out and we just went door to door. It's like, is there any kids here? But they want to come to a vacation Bible school? And the kids were like, yeah, let's go. Because they remembered it from last year. So they came and uh, we just saw like the neighborhood and we saw, I mean, it was like like 10 o'clock in the morning and we saw um, people drinking and, and uh, there was gambling and we saw what we think was a drug deal. It's just a very hard neighborhood. And the kids going along with the neighborhood also were, were pretty hard. Even these kids that were six years old to 12 years old, um, they kind of had this front, like this gangster front. Here's what a picture of one of the kids that we took. <laughs> just kidding. This is uh, just a joke, but it's a little baby wearing a chain and have some cash. But anyways, um, the kids weren't like this. But they did put on this front of, of just a very hard front. They, it seemed like they just disobeyed because they, they, they felt like they had to just to put on this front and that they were harder than they were. And so the whole week we kind of spent with them lots of discipline, um, lots of just like, they, they all kind of like changed their voice to like make them sound like they were hard gangster. Like they, it was really weird. Like little six-year-old was like, teacher, yo teacher, I gotta use it. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, I got a user. I'm going to whip it out right in here. Um, what now? <laughs> He's like, I need to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, we need to use better language in here. This is a church. And uh, anyway, so it was just these kids were just put up this very hard front. And by the end of the week, we, we knew some of their stories. We knew their names. And we just presented them with the gospel. And we were very careful not to, um, like, overly, like, you know, put these kids in a position. They were without their parents of, like, an altar call that was like, you have to come now. But it was just like a general, like, Christ is God and we believe in him. And he uh, came to this world to save us from our sins. And um, just a very simple, you know, biblical altar call for these kids. And we said, if you, if you would like to accept Jesus, raise your hand. And we kind of expected maybe a kid or two out of this group of 20 to 30 kids would raise their hand and, and that would be awesome. But what, what was really cool is all these like kids that were putting up this very hard thug front. Um, every single one, it wasn't like one of them raised their hand and became the popular thing to do for them all raise their hand. But it seemed like every kid in there raised their hand. And, and so we prayed with them. And it was just this really cool for me, this, this uh, visual of here's kids, like childlike faith, just believing in, in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And um, it just reminded me of like this childlike faith that we should have balanced as we in here, the Mill Sunday School, kind of the nerds of new life, do deep theological things and talk about words and uh, vocabulary words and church history and do arguments and th- these presentations of truth, um, that we should never forget the childlikeness uh, of our faith. So that's this, the, the reminder I wanted to give us as we started today. So anyways, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. Um, it's today that we get to show our new logo 
go, check it out. It's pretty sweet, huh? I think I just saw Sean. He, he designed, Sean McCarthy designed it for us. It's a pretty cool look. And uh, what we call it, it's New Life Church, colon Mill Sunday School, a little church, a little circle around it. Um, we, we wanted the New Life in, in, as part of our logo because um, so often I talk to people that aren't in their, in their 20s, like 20-somethings, that's what the Mill ministry is, um, that want to come to Sunday School and are like, oh, it's the Mills. And it's like, well, well we want to invite you. We don't want to have something and just keep it to ourselves. We we do know that Sunday school is a place where lots of us get trained and, and go uh, deep into theological and biblical understanding. And so it just, I kind of remind us every once in a while, if you're older than 20-somethings or if you're younger than your 20-somethings, that is totally fine. We don't card anybody at the door. Um, and so you're welcome here. Um, and so if you zoom into this little, um, get, get right zoomed in and pixelated to the church, um, what, what does it, maybe you notice that maybe you don't, it's kind of the old church design, remember that? And with the new uh, Life Church's, um, like, top on it. So anyways, that's what we were going for. And the, the, the ring around is kind of like a coffee stain because we like coffee. It's just, you know, the, the important symbols. So anyways, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. Um, if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, we have cards on the table. You could fill one of those out, and uh, we would love to um, send you an email. And we, we have a CD, a recording from the Mill on a Friday night. That's our main ministry. So if you have a card, you could bring it to the people as you leave. There'll be nice people out there that will greet you and, and give you a CD. So anyways, we are on this nine-month-long topic of systematic theology, if you're just joining us, if you are new. Um, We started in September, if you look at your little bookmarks that are on the table, and we started in September introducing theology, and we talked about what systematic theology was. We talked about that if you do it in this order, if you talk about God and then creation and then humanity, and here we are in January talking about Jesus, this is kind of the order of what has been defined as systematic theology. Doing theology kind of in this order, in this system, is what we have defined as Christians as systematic theology. And so that's what we're doing. It's kind of this large um, undertaking that we've gone and and said, let's take nine months and get deep into theology and and talk top each month about one of these things. And so it's encouraging to me. I've heard uh, two uh, various people representing two Bible schools in town um, have both said that, that, that this Sunday school is going deeper than their college classes, which I took as a compliment to the Mill Sunday School, not as a slam to their school, but just that we are, you know, going deeper. The, what you're getting in here, if you've been around since um, September and you're going to continue on with us through May, like you're getting a college level, maybe a seminary level course somewhere in there. Like we're, this is kind of deep stuff. And so if you're, if the, if you feel like some of, sometimes this is like, whoa, we're, you know, I've never heard this stuff before. Uh, this is getting pretty deep. Well, that's, that's in some ways kind of the point. We are proudly the nerds of new life. Right? Right. Okay. So good. So this month we're on this topic of Christology. Aaron Wagner started us off last week and talked about the, the humanity of Christ. Today we're going to talk about the divinity of Christ. And so I have a question for you. Uh, not a discussion quite yet. We will do one of those. But just kind of a discussion, dis- discussion question within your own mind, I guess, um, with yourself. So I want you to think about what comes to mind when uh, you think about Jesus. What is the image? What is, um, when you, maybe when you pray to him, think about like the idea um, of praying to him. Do you think about him more as God 
or more as human. Here's a picture that maybe uh, when you think of Jesus, you think of a picture like this, a very reverent picture of Jesus, uh, the halo behind his head, um, very somber looking. Um, he's very clean looking, like his locks of, of curly hair um, are very neat and, and nice, maybe representing this ref, uh, reverent, uh, divine nature of Christ. He's got blue eyes and white skin, um, and just this idea that he's, I don't, I don't know, reverent or like you or divine or I don't know. And maybe there's other images. I'm going to show a couple paintings. Here's another very, very different painting of Jesus. This is by Caravaggio in the Baroque era um, after the Renaissance, and it's the flogging of Christ. And so there he is getting whipped. And you can look at this painting and see something um, very different than the previous painting. This Jesus looks, um, his hair doesn't look curly and nice. His hair looks dirty and, and greasy. And his, the, the, his face looks like, um, I don't know, he's confused or he's in pain. Um, it's just, and, and the, they're showing he's not nude, but you can see a lot more skin on Jesus. See, like, realistic muscles of, the, of, this, of this human. And so one idea here in this painting is that Jesus is much more human than the other picture of, of maybe this one's representing his humanity, the other one representing divinity. And so what, what do you picture when you think of Jesus? Here's one more uh, artistic representation, a painting of Jesus and here the, the, the artist is trying to represent both sides of his humanity and divinity. I'll talk about that in a second. But if you look at the painting, you see the halo, maybe his divinity. You see uh, he's holding a golden book, the, probably scripture. And he's doing, uh, d- do what he's doing with your right hand. Do you see what he's doing there? Look, make, the, make the little fingers. Sometimes you'll see this in a lot of paintings. Have you ever seen this in, in paintings where Jesus is doing some sort of gang symbol? Um, the artist is representing. And sometimes it's just like this. Sometimes it's a little different. But what this represents, if you, if you don't know, uh, it's, it was an early church representation of he's showing two fingers. So he's showing two, which is the divine nature of Christ, both the divinity and the humanity of Christ, those two fingers. And then the three fingers touching is a symbol of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being one. And so if you've, if, I'm sure you've seen this in paintings, Jesus making this kind of uh, symbol with his hands. Um, and so that's what that is. The, the two natures, humanity and divinity with the two fingers, and then three would, would represent the Trinity there. And then what's interesting about this picture is his face. Does anyone notice right away something weird about his eyes? Did you notice that right away? One is bigger than the other. And it's uh, in some ways maybe just interesting, or maybe you'd say creepy, or just like that the one eye is is a little bit bigger than the other eye. And this, uh, what the author was, or the, the painter was trying to represent with the, with the different eyes is the two natures of Christ, the humanity and the divinity of Christ. And so last time we talked about the humanity, if you were here, if you weren't, we, oh, I think the podcast is up, so you could listen to that. Aaron Wagner did a great job. And so today we're going to talk about the divinity of Christ. And when we talk about the humanity and divinity and how Jesus had, was fully both, he was 100% man and 100% God, not half and half, but fully both, we talk about this vocabulary term that I'm, I'm sure you're not afraid of because you're the Mill Sunday School, um, but you can write it down. It's called the hypostatic union. And it's this, this idea that, that Christ is fully God and fully human at the same time. And it's the, the first point on your notes, if you got the, the notes when you came in, um, that, that, that divinity plus humanity equals Jesus, or Jesus equals uh, a fully divine nature 
and a fully human nature at the same time. And we'll talk more about that kind of all this month as we talk about Christology and keep coming back to that. Um, but I, I want to give you that discussion question I told you it was coming. And it is, um, what makes a bigger impression on you? Um, when you think about Jesus, when you consider him, when you pray to him, um, do you consider his humanity or you consider his divinity? What makes the bigger impression on you and your faith? And so meet somebody around you. If you're sitting at a small table, join a bigger table and talk about that. Maybe each one of you has different reasons for choosing his divinity or his humanity and why that makes a bigger impression for you. And then I'll get a mic and I would love to hear some of your responses to what makes a bigger impression, uh, his divinity or his humanity. Cool? Cool. All right. So ready, get set, discuss. All right. Would anyone like to get us started? Um, on what they chose, whether his humanity or his divinity made, makes a bigger impression on you, and maybe a little bit of why. Y- yes. Thank you. I usually um, don't call on people, but when it works, it's like, oh, sweet. Okay. <laughs> um, I, would, I said his divinity, um, just because, like, it's hard to, I mean, he's not, like, fully human with us right now. Right. Um, and so we're praying to him, and it's, it's more spiritual, and it's, like, it, it makes you kind of look at him as higher and like yeah. above us. So I said divinity, and that's why. Good. Awesome. Outstanding, because we pray to him. He's spiritual, sits in heaven. God, this t- Higgins, you always have something. Should I just bring you the mic? Cause... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for getting called on. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you, Wags. So I... I, I... Here's the thing. Jesus' humanity is nothing remarkable if he was just purely human. Right. His divinity is also nothing really remarkable Without for ju- just being God is remarkable in and of itself. But <laughs> what makes Jesus right. <laughs> unique in his divinity and his humanity is the fact that he's divinely human. And so... so I, for you both. No, I, I'm, if I have to take that, so putting that into context, uh-huh. I have to say his humanity is more remarkable because God stepped down to become a man. All the power in the universe was contained in a single body. In a human, yeah. Right. Awesome. So his humanity for you is impressive. So we have one from each. Anybody else? Okay, thank you. Josh Moore. Um, I just said that it was his humanity that's a bigger impression on me because um, just thinking about this and pondering it, that Jesus is just like me in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, he got tired. He, he, um, he talked. And, and we can see um, God, the, the divine nature in him too as well um, and how we were made in God's image. But just thinking about Jesus... I don't know. I mean, if he was sitting here next to me, it'd be kind of hard to ponder it. Well, this is my Lord and Savior. Right. This is God in all his fullness dwelling right next to me. And it's, it's just hard to think about him being human, but him being divine. Um, and that's just, it's hard to think about. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it is the mystery of the, the vocabulary word we put up, the hypostatic union. Like how... So the, the, the mystery of how the hypostatic union works kind of remains a mystery. Like, how is it? that he, How can you be 100% um, something and 100% something else? 
but not be 200%. How can you still be one thing? And that in lies the mystery of, of trying to think about the, the hypostatic union. And we're going to continue doing that today. Like, like last time we talked about the humanity of Christ. Um, this time is the divinity of Christ. And I really just want to say three things today. Um, and so I'll give you an idea of where we're going to go. So we're going to talk about the divinity of Jesus in the early church, the divinity of Jesus uh, in the New Testament writers, and finally the divinity of Jesus in his own words. And this is going to kind of form the argument. Uh, I want to prove to you beyond a shadow of, the do- of a doubt that, that Jesus really did make the claim that he was God. And so that's number three, that Jesus in his own words said that he was God. And there was no, there was no confusion about that with the New Testament writers, that he claim to be God. And so I'm going to show you some verses from the New Testament. The apostles, the disciples that gave witness to Jesus all clearly believed that Jesus was God. And then going on to the early church, um, they believed that Jesus was God, fully God, um, and, and, and a human as well. And so we're going to take kind of, in, in going, we could start with Jesus and his own words, but I thought we'd, we'd kind of go the other end and kind of make this a, a proof, make this an argument that clearly in the early church, the Christians thought he was God. And so why would they think he was God? Well, if we take a step back, well, the New Testament clearly says that Jesus is God. And it's like, well, why would the New Testament writers say and believe Jesus was God? Well, because Jesus himself said it. So so this is the order of the argument of where we're going to, to go today. Once again, I, I, I pre-warn you, this is very heady stuff. Um, this is very um, theological stuff. We'll talk about names and dates of church history figures. And so um, stay with us. This is, this is, I think, at the foundation of our faith as Christians— probably the most important doctrinal thing that Jesus claimed who, that he was God and he was who he said he was. So the first thing is that we're going to talk about is the divinity of Christ in the early church. We're going to go back, uh, look at a few primary sources of early Christians saying and believing that Jesus Christ was God. Anybody else like church history? Going, yeah, oh, look at all the hands. Yes, okay, me too. So um, here's the first guy we're going to talk about. This is Ignatius of Antioch. Can you see what is on him, what's attacking him from where you are? Some lions, yeah. And so there's, there's a reason why, um, those, that, and that is because Ignatius of Antioch was brought to Rome and killed in the Colosseum by lions. That's um, what happened to him. That's what happened to many Christians in the early church. And so he was taken from Antioch, the city um, near Turkey, what is today Turkey, and brought all the way to Rome. And on his way, he wrote letters. He wrote seven letters to various churches. And in those letters, um, about 16 times, he refers to Jesus as God. And so the quote I have for you comes from around uh, 110 AD. All these dates are around dates because uh, we, we were not sure. People didn't date their papers, which is just like why you need to date your papers. If you take journals or notes, date your paper. Maybe it's just the teacher coming out of me. It's, Put your name and the date on your papers. Um, anyways, now that that rant is over, um, Ignatius says this, uh, uh, specifically in, in around 110 AD, he says, God was revealing himself as a man. So speaks, speaking about Jesus, God was revealing himself as a man. And about 16 times in these seven letters, we have Jesus being referred to as God. 
The next guy um, is uh, Irenaeus, uh, and, and he is an early Christian father, writes kind of against the heresies. That's what he titled, titled this uh, writing of his because there was early church heresies. And he was saying, no, that's not what we believe. We believe Jesus is God. And so he wrote things like this. Jesus was very true man and very true God. And we think that Irenaeus was uh, one of the disciples of John, like the John of the Bible, the John, the beloved. We think that Irenaeus, this guy represented in this painting, was one of John's disciples. And um, he writes just maybe very similarly off of what John was teaching, that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. He was God. And so Irenaeus in in, uh, 185 writes about how Jesus was God. This next guy, Tertullian, uh, known as the lawyer, known as the, uh, he's known for this, Um, quote that maybe you've heard before. He says, what does uh, Athens, the capital of, the figurative capital of philosophy, have to do with Jerusalem? Have you ever heard of that quote? So Jerusalem is the kind of the the figurative capital of religion. He's like, what does philosophy and religion have to do with each other? And he kind of meant that as nothing. They mean nothing. And so this kind of guy would be very uh, anti-world, anti-secular world. He would not go to movies. He would not listen to secular music kind of guy. Very serious about the church and the holiness of the church. But he said uh, very early on, around 200 AD, he writes, uh, there are two natures. So he's talking about Jesus. One human and one divine, which are joined in one person. Person, Jesus Christ. So clearly, in the early church, uh, the early church fathers believed Jesus was divine. Uh, two more. This one, uh, Clement of Alexandria. Look how big his head is. Um, obviously, an artist's representation, trying to show that, that they thought Clement was very, very smart, um, would often um, dictate letters a couple at a time, like, and so be dictating a couple different things. He uh, is known for just very, being very smart, very wise, knowing ancient Greek philosophy and kind of making comparisons uh, about what the church and the uh, God is doing throughout philosophy and the church. He would have disagreed with Tertullian about um, the, what is Jerusalem and uh, Athens have to do with each other. Well, Clement would say everything. But anyways, Clement said this um, in one of his writings, circa uh, 210 AD, he alone being both human and God. So he just writes, like, clearly, Jesus is human and God, one in being, um, but, but, but God nature and human nature at the same time. And finally, this last guy writing around 225 AD, this is a guy named Origen. Uh, Origen's famous story is that when he was, maybe some of our ages, a young man, his father was brought out to be martyred, to be killed by the Roman Empire. And um, in, in a rage and a moment of, of passion, Origen also wanted to go out and be a martyr, to give his life up um, for, as a follower of Jesus Christ to the Roman Empire. But his mom, because he lived with his parents, um, how many of you all live with you? You don't have to say. Um, his mom wanted to protect his life and, and knew that um, you'd, you'd, martyrdom is not something you go seek out. Martyrdom is something that happens to you. You don't seek that out. So his mom very wisely stole all of Origen's clothes and hid them. So Origen didn't go out naked. He didn't that day give himself up to be a martyr. And he becomes a uh, pretty important church father. Um, And he writes, um, uh, he wrote a book called First Principles. And he says this, although he was God, he took flesh, having been made man, he remained what he was, God. And so clearly in the early church, 
uh, Christians, our early church fathers, believed Jesus was God. And it kind of gets nailed down into stone or written into stone, figuratively speaking, with the Nicene Creed, which would happen in 325 AD. Um, the, the, the global church, the, the first ecumenical council, as it's called, the, the church in the known world comes together, which we kind of look at a map now and be like, well, it wasn't the known world. Well, it was the known world at the time, but it wasn't the whole world. Because what about the Americas and China? But anyways, it was the, the Christian world of the day. Uh, bishops from all over got together and they formed a creed, the Nicene Creed. And it so famously says this line, which is just all these lists about what we believe about Jesus. There's 10 commas in this one sentence. You can count them. But it says this. It says, we believe in one Lord. So these are statements about Jesus. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, um, eternally begotten of the Father. And, and we always talk about how you know, Jesus is the Son of God, and then we talk about how, um, but he wasn't made, he was begotten. And it would, sometimes we don't really explain that begottenness, but, but and there's really, it's a mystery, but that's what, that's what we believe about what Jesus said about himself. He says he was the Son, but he's not made. He was eternally coexistent with the Father. But it says this, eternally begotten of the Father. Then it says God from God. And so that's what we believe about Jesus. Make, make no doubt about it that the early church, the Sinaian Creed, clearly professes that Jesus this is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and then begotten, not made. And then I underlined this statement uh, of one being with the Father. Make no mistake about it. The early church believed that Jesus was God, of one being. The Greek is homoousios, the same substance as the Father, and through him all things were made. And so this argument is that the early church believed Jesus was fully divine. And so we have to ask ourselves in this kind of argument that flows, well, why would the early church believe Jesus, this man who came and and historically lived around uh, 0 to 33-ish AD, why would people think he was um, God? And that's because, point number two, the divinity of Jesus is, is talked about again and again in the New Testament writers, the disciples, the apostles, the authors of the New Testament, again and again, um, give Jesus uh, the, the, the claim that he made that he was, in fact, who he said he was. He was God. And so I'm going to show you a couple of verses. I'm going to show you five of my favorite verses about Jesus' divinity in the New Testament. We could list more, but I, I just have five for us today. Uh, my favorite five. Um, beginning with this one, Colossians 2.9. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the verse so you can go look it up later. And I, I would um, encourage you to do that, to not just look up the whole verse, but the verse in which it's, it is in context. Um, because some of these, I don't even have the whole verse. I just have snippets of, of what we're trying to show here, that Jesus was divine. And Col- Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, so in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity, that deity is God, all the fullness of the deity dwells or lives in bodily form. So the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Um, clearly, Jesus is, is, is believed by the disciples, believed by the apostles and the New Testament writers as God. Um, this next verse, Philippians 2, is this great passage about how Jesus um, it was God. God made himself human. He humbled himself and became man. And, and this, this encouragement that we should also humble ourselves like Christ humbled himself. A very God became very human. And this sentence says, um, just quite simply, that he existed, Jesus, uh, he existed in the form of God. 
and he became man. And this, this beautiful passage goes on to, it's often said, the kenosis, that he gave himself up to be God, gave himself up to be one of us and to, to not just show the way, but to be the way. Beautiful passage. Um, moving right along, Hebrews 1.8 is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalms 5. And it's used here to say that this verse is about the Son. And it says this. So it's Hebrews 1.8. And it says, of the Son. And the Son would be Jesus. So of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever. So it's like, wait, hold on. Let's pause. So of the Son, this scripture, which is Psalms 45, it's this beautiful argument in the book of Hebrews where, where the, the author is taking someone through the Jewish roots and saying, Jesus was God, is God, came in the order of Melchizedek, uh, which is this Old Testament character you should look up. He's pretty interesting. And he, he becomes God for us in human form. And instead of this, it said, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Um, and so that's what is said of the son. Jesus, your throne, you are God. You are God's throne. Uh, and so thy throne, O God. So it's giving deity to the son. And then here's my favorite, my, my personal favorite. Um, this next one is John 1.1. 1, 1. Does anybody know, familiar with this verse? Pretty huge in our Christian faith as, as we believe Jesus is God. And it says this. It doesn't say that. It uses this word, uh, word. It uses the word, word. Did you get that? Don't be confused. Um, uses the word, word, um, which the Greek word for, anybody know? Starts with an L. Wow, lots of you know. Yeah, the logos is the Greek word used here. It's a word that dates back to Aristotle, and Aristotle used it uh, in like 300 BC to talk about this, this connection between an idea and the knowing. And it's like this bridge of communication, and, and God sends the bridge himself down so that we might understand him and, and his d- divinity. And so um, John 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that's how it's always translated in our Bibles. It's what pretty clearly the, the Greek says. And you're like, is that Jesus? Is Jesus the Word? Yes, because it goes on to say, Jesus, or excuse me, it goes on to say the word became flesh. It goes on to say John, um, the, the, the Baptist, uh, gives testimony to this word. And this word is the light. And then it begins Jesus' ministry. Of course, Jesus is the word of God. And, and the author of the book of John, who is John, um, says that the word was God. And this is just so clear in the text that some people of of various religions, I'm going to name two, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons both believe that uh, in the Bible, they would say, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they would say, yeah, I believe in the Bible. If you talk to a Mormon, do you believe in the Bible? They'd say, yes, we, we believe in the Bible. And, and then do you say, but so do you believe Jesus was divine? And they would say, no, we, we, may, we draw a line. We say, Jesus was not divine. He was human. He was a good prophet. He showed the way. He represents salvation, but he wasn't God. Um, and so they, both of those religions, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, both change the translation of this particular verse into something else. Because this so clearly says the word was God. And we find out that the word is Jesus. So Jesus was God. And uh, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses say something like this. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their translation, the New World Translation published by the Watchtower, they say, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, and the word was with God. And then they say, the word was a little g God is how they translate 
the scripture. And I think so clearly from the Greek, um, it's, that's not what it says. But, but they come to the text with a bias um, and say Jesus wasn't divine. And so they, they change the text or they translate it in a different way and say, oh, Jesus was just a little g God, not the word was God. Um, the Mormons similarly uh, changed the text. They, they translate it. Joseph Smith translated it this way. That last phrase, he says, and the son was of God, not the word was God. They, they, they just change it all together. Clearly not working from uh, the Greek translation itself, but, but ha- coming into it with this bias that Jesus wasn't God. So we just need to tra- change this verse in order to uh, say what their bias is. So we as... Um, Protestant, evangelical, Nicene Creed-following Christians, we, we look at this verse and say, let's not change it. As hard as it is to believe that 2,000 years ago, God showed up as a man, let's not change the text. Let's believe it. And so Christians everywhere throughout the ages have believed this very hard teaching that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God. And we, we hold that as kind of the foundation to our faith. And so that's John 1.1. 1, 1. And if there's any question about it, the continuation of this chapter John 1.18 says this. It says, no one has ever seen God. Okay. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son. So the son has seen God. And then it says this, who is himself God. Do you see that there? Like it's hard to, like if you're looking at the text, because so often uh, Muslims, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses will say Jesus was a great prophet. He never claimed to be God. The New Testament never says he was God. I'm sorry. Did, what? Like look at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in a close relationship with the Father has made him known. So this Son is not only uh, the one and only, is not only God himself, but is in a close relationship with the Father, making the Father known. Um, how clear it is that the New Testament, the writers, the disciples, the apostles believed Jesus is God. And so why did they believe that? Well, following the argument, um, Jesus says, Jesus makes the claim that he was um, and is God. So the divinity of Jesus in his own words, I have four verses. Um, here's the first one. So you see what we're doing here, kind of just to like to keep us all on track. We're in a, in a way going backwards and saying the early church believed Jesus was God. Why? Well, the, the Bible, the, the writers of the Bible clearly believed Jesus was God. Well, why? Well, because Jesus made that claim. And so here's some of the claims. Um, I have four of them. John eight fifty eight says this, and I'll have to talk about it just a little bit. It says, truly, truly. So these are the words of Jesus in quotation. Uh, he's talking with some Jewish people about Abraham and says that he's better than Abraham, which would really tick you off if you were Jewish and someone said, hey, guess what? I'm better than Abraham. I was, I'm sorry. Abraham was our prophet. Abraham was our, you know, father Abraham. We sing about him and had many sons. Um, so you're better than him. Um, so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was comma, I am. And what's so interesting about that sentence, if, you've, if you're not familiar with it, um, is, is like, wait, Jesus, is he saying he's God? And in a way, yes, he is. Because I, that I am statement, and the Greek would be ego ami, in the Hebrew, uh, it would be Yahweh, this word that we uh, uh, say, oh, Yahweh, that, that's the name of God. And that's the name that Yahweh, 
I am, gives to Moses way back in Exodus. Is it chapter 3 where Moses and the burning bush and, and Moses says, God, what is your name? Who am I to say sent me when I go back to the Israelites? And God says, I am that I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. Um, this, so this, the, this verb of being God chooses as his name, that he is, that he was, that he always will be. I am is this name of God. And that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, in case you're wondering what that, that Hebrew word means. That's, the, that's what it means. It means I am. And so Jesus here says, before Abraham was, I am. And so you can see, if you were Jewish and knew that history of, of I am, that he is making a claim here of divinity. And, and let there be no mistake about it, that the people standing there thought he was making the claim of divinity, because the next verse, if you're looking at it in your own Bible, uh, John eight fifty eight says this, so they took up stones to throw at him. Why would they pick up stones to throw at him? Because they were going to kill him. Because in the Old Testament, you can look at Leviticus chapter 24, uh, specifically 16. In the Old Testament, the law is, if anyone blasphemes the name of the Lord, they are to be put to death. The entire simile must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, uh, which would be Yahweh, uh, the I am, they are to be put to death. So here Jesus is saying, before Abraham was... Yahweh, like I am. He's taking on divinity. And, and the Jews weren't mistaken. The Jews understood right what he was saying, and they picked up stones to kill him like the Old Testament does. But what's insane is that Jesus, maybe more than insane, what's beautiful, what's uh, awesome here is that Jesus was, is God. And so he made this claim, and the, the Jews did what they were supposed to do, pick up stones to to. to to kill anyone who is using the name blasphemingly. But it's, so Jesus is making this insane, crazy claim that he is God here in this verse. Um, furthermore, John 10, 30, another verse. Um, how much clearer can you get by saying, uh, as Jesus does in John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. Everybody say, duh. <laughs> I guess you don't have to, but um, it's so clear. Maybe that's an irreverent way to think about it, but duh. It's duh. He's claiming to be God. Um, I don't know how people um, can say, yeah, I read the Bible. Jesus never claims to be God. I'm sorry, did you read this one? Did you skip over where Jesus says that he and the Father are one? And, and in some, I have heard the argument. Um, I had some Mormon friends when I lived in Utah, and we would respectfully dialogue. And I asked them, well, what about this verse? And they said, um, well, that, that just meant Jesus and the Father were one in purpose. Like they both had the same purpose, and they were one. They were in agreement. That's what that meant. And I, I wasn't quick enough on my feet to, to say, well, did you read the next verse? Because the Jewish people at the time, if they just thought, oh, Jesus was just saying, oh, I am doing the Father's will. I and the Father were in agreement. Well, then why is the next verse, why does it say the Jews took up stones uh, against him? And Jesus um, answered and said, I have showed you many good works. For which of them are they stoning me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. For you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so clearly, Jesus is claiming to be God. Uh, two more verses. Um, John fourteen seven. If you really knew me, this is Jesus talking, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, show us the Father, 
And that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Beautiful. It's clear. Uh, one final verse, which does need a little bit of uh, explanation, because so often Jesus is given the title of uh, Son of God. And we often are called children of God. So it's like, oh, are we God? Well, not quite. Jesus, that title is used about 50 times in the New Testament. And the Jews knew what he was saying. They were knew that he wasn't just saying, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I believe in God. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just like Adam was a child of God. I'm in line with Adam, so I'm a child of God. Well, that, that title, um, the Jews wanted to kill him because John 5.18 says, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. For not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so that's, that's why, I mean, that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Jesus being killed, is that he was claiming to be God. And so I quickly want to just talk about an argument for the divinity of Jesus. I have a few more, and maybe we'll get into them um, next week. But I, I wanted to talk about this one and invite up someone. So Aaron Higgins, uh, who many of you know, is an expert in C.S. Lewis, has read all C.S. Lewis. If any of you ever you have a, a question about C.S. Lewis, uh, ask Aaron Higgins. Um, so I asked Aaron to, to tell us what the Lewis trilemma is. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Lewis trilemma. A few of you, I see some hands are not raised, so this argument is beautiful. Without further ado, Aaron Higgins. If, if you've read Mere Christianity um, or been lucky enough to find a copy of the radio broadcast, Mere Christianity was actually broadcast during the London Blitz. Uh, C.S. Lewis was asked by the BBC to uh, speak encouraging words to people huddled in there fallout shelters and places like that. Um, so out of that, out of his speeches on the BBC radio, uh, grew mere Christianity. So in, in the BBC original, uh, Lewis, Lewis made this argument about the divinity of Christ. Uh, it's referred to in its technical term as the Lewis trilemma. Uh, Lewis himself didn't actually think of the argument. He just built upon it uh, and made it popular to what it is today. So here's, here's what it appears in mere Christianity. I'm going to go ahead and read it out for you. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a man-man or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying, or how unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So it boils it down to three basic choices. So he was either who he claimed to be, God, he was insane, or he was evil itself, evil incarnate. 
So th this is probably the most widespread apologetic argument. If you're familiar with the term uh, apologetics, it has nothing to do with the term apology. You're not apologizing. You're defending or arguing your faith. The, the argument is also simply referred to as the liar, lunatic, lord, or the three L's. Um, but it's not perfect, and we'll, we'll get into that. It, it has some weaknesses. Um, and like anything, anything trying to fully explain the divine, kind of like the, the argument about the, the Trinity, we talked about that a few months ago. It breaks down at a certain point. So there are weaknesses, and the weaknesses of this argument are important. Uh, typically, if you're discussing the three L's with an atheist or an agnostic, they're going to bring these out. And some of these arguments have also been brought up by other Christian theologians. Uh, so there's some limited choices. Uh, most atheists are going to tell you, well, there's a fourth L that's missing. It's legend that this was all made up. Well, I go, that's, that's easily defeated from the standpoint of, really, would all these hundreds of people with these uh, apostles go to their deaths if it was nothing more than a made-up story? Um, other complaints about it, and these are more modern complaints of the, of the argument, is that it, it misses the historical context of the time. Um, that Jesus wasn't just purely God, but he was also Messiah too. Um, meaning that he was just, just more than God walking amongst us. There's a lot of things at play. Um, so that those are the three primary weaknesses uh, of this argument. But they themselves are kind of weak. And, and the reason for this is because Lewis wasn't looking for the apologetic silver bullet. So really, really what Lewis was going for is highlighting this important message. If he, Jesus, was truly God, like he claimed, then his message, what Jesus was speaking about, must be the most important message of all human history. So while the trilemma doesn't go into great detail, it doesn't really need to. Rather, the point of the trilemma is to make you stop and think and consider your choices. Either you take them seriously, and in that case, this is the most important decision that you'll make of your entire, entirety for all eternity, or Jesus was crazy, and that's that. That's good. Thank you, Aaron Higgins. So I think with that, um, I have this, the, the picture we started with, this um, divine nature and human nature in one being. And we'll consider that for the rest of this month. There's two more Sundays in this month. But I want to just close in prayer. Close in prayer to the God who came as a human. And so, Jesus, uh, we fully pray to you right now. We bow our heads and we, we worship you as God, as, as this, this human who came 2,000 years ago, but this human who was fully God, that we take upon the truth of the claim that you said you were God. And God, we don't just blindly take this step. Um, we take this step in faith, saying that there were eyewitnesses of your resurrection, of your miracles. That we ourselves are eyewitnesses of, so many of us, are of, the, of the changes and the beauty of our own lives that have been changed according to your will and your purposes. And so, Jesus, we pray to you as God. We pray to you as, as also a man that came 2,000 years ago and, and lived and died for our sins. And God, it's this idea that we started with, this childlike faith that, that God, would you help us to understand these things? Would you help us to um, 
deepen our faith in you of this claim that you made that you were God and are God still. So, Father, we worship you, the Son. We thank you that you saved us, and through the Holy Spirit we believe and we are empowered to go out. And We worship you. We love you. And everybody said, Amen. All right, friends, go in peace. Peace out. We will see you next week. Um, Have a good week. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.